Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the second live stream of the Spirit of Prophecy podcast. I always enjoy doing these things live, and I hope uh, I hope you're able to join me live today. And love to have some interaction, and love to answer any questions. I do have uh, some that have been given to me that I'm going to be covering in this program, but I do want to try to prioritize the live audience. I was kind of hoping to be able to do a later time in the day, but I wasn't able to work that out. I have some other things I need to do this evening, so we're going to stick to the original time uh, when a uh, a lot of you are used to listening to these programs, and I hope to tie up any loose ends that we have yet to cover uh, from the uh, discussions we've had this week on the Olivet Discourse. So before we get into that too, I just want to point out um, some changes that may be coming in the near future on the program. So um, we've been trying to put out new content every day. Um, On weekdays, we usually do a bonus episode or something you know, that I've done in the past on my old channel on Saturdays that I release. And then just to kind of scale back a little bit, we started adding sermons on prophecy on Mondays. And what kind of what my goal has been is to just starting out, get a bunch of content right away on the subject. But I know I'm not going to be able to keep up this pace forever uh, with the content. Eventually, I'm going to run out of subject matter, even though I still have a lot of other things I'm wanting to cover. Uh, but uh, what I'm, I'm here in the near future, I'm probably going to slow down on the daily content, but I'm going to try to start working a little harder at getting different guests and things on the program and, uh, and, and also doing more live broadcasts. I think those are typically the best ones. So when that start when that starts happening, we won't have as regular of a schedule because one of the most challenging things about, having the live guests is you just can't do a specific time because everyone has different schedules. And so what I would like to just be able to do is start trying to line up more guests and then just doing the streams when they're available. So uh, we're going to kind of play that by ear as we go. But um, this particular episode on the podcast list, uh, it was going to be episode 50. And that was, I wanted to at least be putting out the daily content on the weekdays for 10 weeks. And so we have definitely accomplished that. Uh, we might keep that going a little bit longer. But e- either way, I'm uh, hoping to change some of that up pretty soon and have more guests. I've really enjoyed some of the guests that I've had, people I agree with, people I disagree with. And I'd like to do some more of that, um, especially when it comes to the subject of amillennialism. I would like to have someone on to discuss the subject of amillennialism. But the problem with that, uh, so far, I can only find people, and I haven't asked any of these people yet, by the way, but all the people I'm finding who believe in amillennialism typically are heretics. And I I prefer to not have heretics in the program. not saying I won't, but I prefer not to. Um, I like having fundamental Baptists, if I can, King James people, and unfortunately, when it, when you get into amillennialism, while I have not declared that a damnable heresy, I, the people that I find out there defending it typically are. But not because of their amillennialism, but because of many other things. So if you know any good people out there uh, that would consider themselves amillennial, 
uh, let me know. I'll take suggestions on that. And maybe we'll have them on, on the program to talk about that because I've got several questions about that because it ain't making sense to me. Uh, I, I do not agree with it. And then I, same thing too with post-millennial. If you know any good post-millennials out there that aren't heretics, I'd like to talk with them sometimes. I think that'd be good. So we're going to go ahead and start answer, uh, answering some questions. I'm going So uh, I'm going to try to focus on the live chat ones. Uh, if I get caught up on those or ahead, I've got some other ones that I'm going to go to. Um, and if it appears that I skipped your question, I probably did it on accident. And so, yeah, if you could start out the question where it says question, that will be a help. So I'll notice it in case the, in, in case the live chat gets busy. Sometimes it gets uh, busy with people having conversations, which is fine, but then it's easier for me to miss things. So, uh, go ahead and, and uh, do the first one from drinking from the rock who is uh celebrating his anniversary today by the way so congratulations to him going to see the ark encounter and that is a cool uh experience i like the creation museum better but everyone needs to do the ark encounter just because it is really cool observing a life-size noah's ark that is a pretty pretty neat experience that i think everybody needs to experience at least once and so uh, hopefully I have fun with that. But the question that he asked on here is, what do you think about the possible correlation of Revelation 6, 12, and 13 in Matthew 24, 29, Mark 13, 24, 25, and Luke 21, 25, and 26? And that's a reference to the sun being darkened and moon turned to blood. And uh, I did, I believe I did cover that in one of the streams. But as someone who believes that the, Olivet Discourse was for that generation, yet not everything happened in that generation because of uh, is because Israel was not ready. And I and uh, I do have more to kind of defend that position here that I I will probably get to. But while I I do believe you can connect those things because I don't believe that event took place. In the first century, I believe that's one of the things that did not happen in 70 AD, just as I believe that Jesus Christ did not return and gather his elect in 70 AD. That did not happen because Israel was not ready. What they were to prepare for, what they were supposed to do, did not take place. And therefore, uh, those things did not happen in the first century. But I do believe they will come to pass in the future. So if people want to make a connection there, I don't think they're wrong in doing that because uh, just like Jesus didn't return in 70 AD, I don't believe the sun uh, was turned to darkness and moon to blood in 70 AD. I believe that will happen in the future as we see in Revelation because it's my position that Revelation is future. So uh, hopefully that helps. And if that confuses you a little bit as far as um, you know, what I'm saying about it being a prophecy for that generation, you're going to have to go back and watch my previous programs. I don't want to take the time to explain all of that again. And then we have Michael Paul Chavez who asked, do you think that all of the Olivet Discourse was in 70 AD? And the answer to that is no, in the sense of while there was a prophecy given to that generation, um, then, um, 
you know, it, it, at the same time, I, I started reading a comment. I got sidetracked. While it was for that generation, there were th- there was um, things that were dependent on them being ready. While there are some uh, things like the destruction of the temple that are prophesied, we do see a call for them to be ready. And I want to go ahead and take time to to kind of uh, do a little refresher on this. But with prophecy, I talked about this before, it's not always just predicting of the future. In fact, I think a good way to explain this too, uh, to help people understand, um, well, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and cover this right now because this helps clarify a lot of things. Because uh, here's one question too that, that I get, and I think this is a legitimate question, and that is, I claim that prophecies, some prophecies, can be affected by man. So the thing is, if I'm saying that the that Israel's lack of readiness affected the prophecy of Jesus in Matthew 24, then how do we know what we see in Revelation is going to come to pass? And I do believe I have a very good answer, and this is something, there are several things people need to look at when they're looking at prophecy so for example in revelation i do not believe that there is anything that we can do to affect the events of revelation here's why in revelation 119 notice what jesus said he said write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter here's something that's a little different about the prophecies in revelation and many of the prophecies we read about in the Old Testament. While we read many prophecies in the Old Testament, we are reading a record of how those prophecies were given by the prophets. And those prophecies were given by prophets, letting them know, hey, you've got, for example, um, remember in the Old Testament when God said, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you'll obey, but a curse if you'll disobey. Many prophecies were like that in the scriptures where they're kind of laying out two potential options. So when the prophet is speaking to them of things, they are, it's, it's spoken with the intention of them to listen to the prophet, to repent of whatever it is they're doing wrong, to start doing whatever it is that they, uh, they haven't been doing. That's what we see in many of those prophecies. And so whenever we look at those prophecies, it's always necessary for us to go and say, hey, what did they do? And that's how it is with many of the prophecies for Israel. This is the difference between Israel-based prophecy and Jesus-based prophecy. The, in the Old Testament, we have many prophecies that are to Israel. And, but, and in those prophecies, we do. We see potential good if they do right and potential bad if they do wrong. And another thing we see in Old Testament prophecies are prophecies showing that Israel will do the wrong thing. And sure enough, Israel did do the wrong thing. The New Testament prophecies, they are not Israel-based prophecies. They are Jesus-based. And so many. So the thing is, since these prophecies are, their outcome is dependent on Christ, we know exactly what's going to happen because Jesus Christ always comes through. He always does right. So, pro- so the thing is too, we can even go back to Old Testament prophecies 
that did not get fulfilled at, through Israel. But yet people still talk about them as future. And yes, they are future because their fulfillment will be in Jesus Christ. So with Old Testament prophecies, we see like optional outcomes uh, because you know they were directed at Israel and Israel disobeyed. We got to check and see what they did. They disobeyed. They did the wrong thing. So they got the bad outcome. But all these good things that we see promised in the Old Testament that are for the future, those things are all going to find their fulfillment in Christ, not in Israel. And many people are making the mistake of still looking at Israel. We see, and so in Revelation, when it's given, you know, he just said with that one, right. This was a written revelation. This is a written prophecy that was delivered to seven churches, showing them things that were going to come. These are not, this is not, there's, there's not a message in there. You know, call, you know, telling us about a negative outcome. If we don't listen, a positive. If we do listen, no, this is showing one outcome, and it will come to pass. And he said, "Right." We see in Revelation twenty-one five, and he that sat upon the throne said, "Behold, I make all things new." And he said unto me, "Right, for these words are true and faithful." Revelation twenty-two six, and he said unto me, "These sayings are faithful and true." And the Lord God, the holy prophet, sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. So there's nothing in the Revelation prophecies that show any other potential outcome other than the one that is given. It's specifically written in a way telling us things that will come to pass. Not all prophecy is like that, but most people read all prophecy exactly the way they do Revelation, and that's a mistake. That's not how it's intended to be done. But it is interesting, when, when a prophecy is written, typically when a prophecy is written, I mean, that's when nothing's changing it. But often when the prophets would speak to people, they are telling them things, trying to get them to do something, so the things will turn out good. And so Habakkuk 2.2, it says, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. So prophecies like that, those are often given where like this is going to happen. Nothing's going to change it, but not all prophecies are that way. So Matthew 24, when we're looking at it, let's go ahead and, and uh, just remind everybody about this because this is really important. But in Matthew 24, um, after it gets to the glorious appearing, the part that we're all looking for, after the sun is dark and moon turned to blood, that we are also looking for, after it tells us those things that did not take place, he gives the parable of the fig tree so that generation would know when these things were about to take place. He And then in all three accounts, it promises that these things are going to take place in that generation. But then notice in Luke 21, 34, and take heed to yourselves. Why? What is there to take heed of? You said this is going to happen. It's going to happen, right? No, there's something you need to do in this prophecy. Lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life, so that that day come upon you unawares. 
for as a snare it shall come upon all them that dwell in the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore and pray that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And what we often do that's a huge mistake is we ignore all the parables before the Olivet Discourse to Israel, trying to get them to be ready, trying to help, help them see their failure and what they were supposed to do as a nation. And and I'll and if I get a chance, I'm going to talk about that, what they were supposed to do, how they were supposed to be ready. Hey, you ask Pete, you ask your average preacher, especially a futurist, what did it mean to be ready at Christ's coming? And they'll give you a bunch of opinions. What they won't give you is Old Testament scripture showing exact specifics of what they were supposed to do. And those are there. Those are in the Bible. At the triumphal entry, Jesus quoted several Old Testament passages. We can go back to those and see exactly what they were supposed to do to be ready. And they weren't ready. Israel wasn't ready. Israel did not have what God wanted at his return. And so those things did not come to pass. They they didn't end, but they will in the future, and they will be fulfilled next time because they will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ and through his church. And so uh probably say more about that in a little bit, but I rambled about that for a while. But let me get back to the live chat and uh try to pay attention to what's going on. And again, if I need to clarify something too, you know, don't hesitate to ask. So uh, I don't believe everything has been fulfilled from the Olivet Discourse. I believe much uh, needs to be fulfilled. And uh, John Young asks, what are primitive Baptists? I don't know a whole lot about primitive Baptists. Um, I've heard some things from people who used to go to primitive Baptist church, and they're just like really, really old school. And um, the ones that I, uh, people in our church used to go to one, they said that um, it was a big controversy in their church, and this was going back years. They were really old. That when uh, they put indoor plumbing in the church, they didn't think people should be using a bathroom in a church, and uh, they also didn't use instruments. So they're just like really, really hardcore, old school Baptists. So, uh, but yeah, I don't know a whole lot about them. I can't really answer that. But uh, question: Can you talk about Daniel eight eleven, where the Bible says the sacrifice? Was taken, yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. And by him was this daily sacrifice taken away and the place of his sanctuary cast down. Yeah, I think with, with Daniel 8, everybody needs to read that um, with, a, with a focus in mind, understanding that it was primarily about events that took place uh, before the time of Christ. That many of these uh, prophecies... Um, they were about uh, the Greek Empire, the rise of the Greek Empire. It was things that happened um, with Antiochus Epiphanes when he came in and he desecrated the temple. Those things for sure had a fulfillment way back um, even before the time of Christ. Now, there are definitely things that I believe foreshadow events that were still in the future. The, you know, When it comes to the real abomination of desolation that happened in 70 A.D., but if you go back and you read Ma uh, like first and second Maccabees, you can see all these th things take place where the, uh, you know, the Gentiles, they had desecrated the temple. They did all kinds of horrible things. A lot of abominations were committed there. 
they had to have a time of cleansing for that temple where they did have a time of cleansing and they did start using the temple again, which was a really big deal. And it was a major fulfillment of prophecy. But a lot of people read Daniel 8. And they'll look at the 2,300 days and they'll make that about stuff that's still to come in a future Daniel's 70th week. I think all that stuff happened. I think the 2,300 days happened before the time of Christ. But um, I believe the abomination of desolation, um, you know, it, it's there's it was fulfilled with Antiochus Epiphanes. We kind of see a repeat of it in 70 AD. Uh, and I believe that because Jesus specifically spoke of it. And so I would call that an abomination of desolation. But then also, um, I believe that was a foreshadowing of what we see in Revelation 13, where we have the beast uh, declaring himself to be God, making people take a mark and worship him. I don't believe it's the exact same thing. I think the abomination of desolation was something very specific, but it was a foreshadowing of uh, what was to come with the beast. And so, um, hopefully that helps. Um, so, you think the Jews rejecting Jesus pushed part of the Olivet Discourse to the future. And yes, and I do. And, and let me just show you here. Now again, don't, don't put words in my mouth on this. What people need to understand is whenever you start showing how people affected prophecy, often what they'll do is they'll kind of change subjects on you and they'll run to places where uh, prophecies... Um, where, where it was proved or where we see that, uh, other prophecies showing that how things happen or how things are going to happen. So, for example, Israel, it was prophesied that they wouldn't listen. But understand, when Jesus came at his first coming, Jesus for sure, in a way, went through the motions of doing certain things that were prophesied, even though Part of what needed to take place was Israel needed to accept the Messiah. Now, I talked about this a while back, but I'm going to repeat it. In Ezekiel 2, in verse 1, it says, And he said unto me, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. And the Spirit entered into me, and he spake unto me, and set me upon my feet, that I heard him that spake unto me. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even unto this very day. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord. And they, whether they will hear, whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. God sending the prophet to uh, Ezekiel to Israel was the right thing to do. It was a righteous thing to do. Say, so, well, they weren't going to listen. So, but it doesn't matter. You do the right thing anyway. Hey, and just like sometimes, you know, as Christians, we need to do good and we need to help people, even though we know they probably are not going to respond properly to this help. These people probably are going to do bad. They're going to reject us. But you know what? You got to do the right thing anyway. And sometimes we do. You know, we the Lord might lead you to help somebody financially. They might lead you to do something for somebody that you know. You know they're going to turn around and stab you in the back. But you know what? You do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. God sent a prophet to Israel because they needed to be warned. Even though God knew they weren't going to listen, God did the right thing 
and he sent a prophet to them, and then they're accountable. And so we see also in Ezekiel 33, a very well-known passage. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, speaking to the children of thy people and saying to them, when I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their coast and set them for their watchmen, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He hath heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning, his blood shall be upon him, but he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. But if that watchman see the sword come and blow not the trumpet and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way and turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. And I like the last verse, verse 33. And when this cometh to pass, lo, it will come. Then they shall know that a prophet hath been among them. So why does God often send prophets and messages to people who are not going to listen? You know why? To show that he is righteous. To do, show that he will do what he said that he will do. And understand, God always knew Israel would reject the Messiah. It's prophesied that they would do that. But it didn't stop God from doing what he said he would do. He did send a Messiah like he said he would. He came riding in at that triumphal entry and fulfilled Zechariah 9.9. Didn't fulfill the rest of the chapter because they didn't receive the Messiah, they weren't ready at his coming, but he did all the things that he was supposed to do. He and, and, and so Jesus, you could say he was the watchman. He did what he was supposed to do. He warned Israel. He, he preached to them and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was a watchman. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then after that, Jesus preach the same thing and said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand what was but at the same time so what happened jesus came presenting the kingdom they weren't but they weren't they ended up killing john the baptist they killed jesus and they still had another chance he sent the apostles to him the apostles were watchmen the apostles spoke the truth the apostles preached for them to repent but you know what they did not accept and so it's interesting how the kingdom of heaven was at hand then. And the dispensations will say, well, it was at hand then. But because they rejected, you know, that it went to the, we went into this church age. And then in Daniel's 70th week, in the tribulation, it's going to be at hand again for Israel. No, they lost their chance. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, he said, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, is that the day of Christ is at hand. Now, how could the kingdom of God be at hand at one point, while Jesus was on the earth, and now 
It's not at hand. And, and here's the thing. The day of Christ, I believe, is the rapture. And at the same time, too, we all understand that kingdom is not going to come until after the rapture. So if the rapture is not at hand, then the kingdom can't be at hand. And, and what's going on? Again, it was at hand. He was presenting things to him like he said he would. He had a coming, you could say. I, I don't like to put it that way, but I, I don't get mad at people that do. In 70 AD, but it was a coming in judgment because Israel did not do have anything ready. Nothing was ready. What God was looking for, again, hopefully I'll, I'll get to that. They, they didn't have it. It wasn't there as it was prophesied. But it didn't stop Jesus from warning them about these things like a prophet supposed to do. And in Matthew 24, he clearly is giving a warning. He's telling them to be ready. Yeah, but he knew he weren't, they weren't going to do it. It doesn't matter. He still has to tell them. He still has to warn them. And so he did his part. And so you know what? Their blood was upon them. So you nobody and so these dispensationalists too that act like we're teaching God broke, broke his promise to Israel. No, that's not true. Their blood is on them. Jesus came and did everything he said that he was going to do. Israel rejected him. Israel was not ready in spite of all that was done. They weren't ready. And so therefore, uh, Jesus did keep his promise. But the prophets were also right. Israel rejected. And that is what we see at the very end of the book of Acts. After Paul makes a final attempt to get some Jews saved, we see... Well spake Isaiah the prophet and basically quoted a prophecy showing Israel would not listen. So, um, anyway, uh, you know, hopefully that helps. Talked about a lot of stuff there. But um, Drinking for the Rock here says the Olivet Discourse is two-part answer in three sections. At first, Jesus answers about the end times, then begins to answer concerning the abomination, desolation, and Herod's temple. And, you know, I think a lot of times I'm not exactly sure what you're saying on that, but often people kind of distract a little bit by going to the three questions. You got to look at the three questions and then we've all got to figure out exactly what question he's answering in each thing. And um, I think there's some truth to that, but, but the questions that they ask don't change the clear message that we see uh, that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 24. And so we got preaching and politics, brother Scott Clem. He said, how can Israel not be ready when the whole point of the Olivet discourse was to announce judgment upon Israel for rejecting Christ? Wasn't believing Israel ready. Uh, didn't they escape? And absolutely. Um, you know, the, the Christians escaped, they escaped that judgment. But again, we don't see a gathering take place. Because what was supposed to be there was not there. Obviously, saved people, the Christians, did not get destroyed during that time. But Israel did not get saved during that time. They were not, they were not, they were not rescued during that time. Because here's what it means to be ready. All right, Let me briefly uh, give you what it means to be ready. This is why Jesus didn't come back in the first century. And don't get me wrong, he knew he wasn't going to come back in the first century. But at the, what was Jesus looking for in Israel? 
What was Jesus looking for on that day of visitation at that triumphal entry? All we have to do to figure that out is go back and we can look at the in the previous chapters when he is giving his parables. So for example, I'm going to have to briefly do this. I don't have time to preach this whole sermon. But Luke 18.8 says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Okay, And so when he spoke of this, was he talking about something that was just about to come right then at his triumphal entry? Or is he talking about something way into the future? Well, let me tell you, he didn't find faith like he was looking for at the triumphal entry, but he will in the future. Why? Because uh, we have a whole group of people out there, Christians, saved people, who have put their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. They've not trusted in the things of the temple or things of the law or Levitical priesthood. They've trusted in the work of Jesus Christ. So, yes, he will find those things in the future. He did not find that at his triumphal entry. Um, we see he was also looking for righteousness. He was looking for a righteous people. We see that in Luke 18 in the parables that he gives. Let me go ahead and briefly uh, cover these. But first he gives a parable about faith. He didn't find that. He then goes and he get, gives an example of two men going into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other publican. Now we're all familiar with this parable. We've all make application from this all the time. But ultimately, what's he showing here? Hey, we've got one guy who recognizes he's sinful. He's justified. We've got this Pharisee here who thinks because of his works of the law, he's righteous. Guess what? The guy who recognized his sin, who was looking for mercy, he found righteousness. The other one didn't. Jesus wanted to find righteousness at his coming. He didn't find it. But, you know, and we see that in Isaiah chapter 56. In verse 1, it says, Thus saith the Lord, Keep ye judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. And that, Isaiah 56, um, this is a passage that is prophetic about the triumphal entry. And in fact, if you go and you keep reading it, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he gets to verse 5, Even unto them will I give in mine house within my walls a place and name better than that of sons and of daughters, and I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off, and also the sons of the strangers that join themselves to the Lord to serve him, and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. Remember when Jesus quoted that at the triumphal entry? But you know what? He didn't find a righteous people. In fact, he was also wanting to find a people of all nations. But what did he find? He found only Jews who were like that Pharisee, keeping people out, you know, keeping shutting people out of the kingdom of God, and they weren't even righteous themselves. Jesus called them out for all these things. too. there's so much scripture we could go to on this. It's not even funny. But will Jesus find righteousness at his second coming? You better believe he will. You know why? Because we have a righteousness. Being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So, yes, he will find righteousness at his second coming. Not ours, 
his righteousness. Uh, we see in back in Luke chapter 18, while he's going through these parables, this is Jesus showing what he's looking for as he's about to make his triumphal entry. And uh, we're not going to read uh, all of these, but um, it's, uh, well, I'll read this first one. It says, And they brought in him also infants that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called and said unto them and said, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Jesus was looking for people who believed in him, who were looking to him, that were trusting in him. He will find those people the second coming from all nations. In fact, we see in Revelation chapter 7, we see people appearing before the throne from every nation and kindred and tongue. We see that in, in Revelation chapter 7 in a passage that I believe is about the glorious appearing of Christ right after Revelation chapter 6. We can go on and on with all these things. You can see the comparisons. We uh, In Luke 18, 28 through 30, he gives a parable of a faithful servant. He's looking for faithful servants. because You know why? Because when he comes, he's bringing his reward with him. And our works are going to be tried of what sort they are. And, and, I, and 1 Corinthians 3 talks about that. Jesus will find that at his, at his second coming. So understand many, many, many things that we see at Christ's first coming, especially with his presenting of the kingdom to Israel, it was giving that nation an opportunity for a salvation from protection, from judgment and destruction. And they didn't, and, and, and he was going to say, and to uh, an opportunity for him to set up his kingdom, but he didn't do it. You know why? They weren't ready. So that Olivet Discourse, it is, that is a, that is a prophecy that has uh, different potential outcomes and they were not, they absolutely were not ready. And so even though saved people escaped the judgment that came on Jerusalem, Jesus didn't, you know, save them from all tribulation. Christians have been suffering since the beginning of time. They didn't get gathered up and taken to heaven or anything like that. You know, Jesus didn't come and set up his kingdom, all that. So, um, Again, we've, we've got to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be ready? And they weren't ready. So Israel was not saved. They were not protected. But one day at Christ's second coming, there will be a people of faith. There will be a people who are righteous. There will be a people who believe on him and are trusting in him. And they will be gathered up. And, we, and, and those promises will be fulfilled through us, not a physical nation. So Jabin asked, do you think there could be multiple occurrences of the sun and moon being darkened? For example, Isaiah 13, 10 seems to be specifically about the Medes overthrowing Babylon. Um, you know, I'm not real familiar with, uh, I just totally lost my spot. Uh, okay, here we go. Um, I know, I think there's going to be one I don't think there's ever been a sun being darkened and moon turned to blood. Um, just, I, I believe there's going to be one. Just like, too, technically, I believe, and I talked about this, uh, I did a Sunday school lesson a while back on the day or days of the Lord. 
I believe there is one day of the Lord. However, I do believe there has been uh, prophecies that uh, of things to come that were foreshadowing the day of the Lord and the sun being dark and the moon turned to blood. But I don't believe that actual event ever took place. I don't think there's ever been a time, um, you know, when there was the sun being dark and moon turned to blood and then a major judgment. I think, I, I think a literal event of that is, is only going to be in the future. And often the way I explained it in my message about the day or the days of the Lord, it, it's kind of the way I kind of illustrated it. It would be like if I was going, it's like the, this prophecy of judgment on the world, Armageddon, if you want to call it that. It's been around since Enoch. You know, Enoch prophesied, behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints. Okay. Enoch prophesied about that. And we believe that's something that's still to come. Okay. So we'll call it Armageddon. So it would be kind of like this. Sometimes in the Bible, when it was talking about the day of the Lord, it was doing prophecies about local judgment, you know, on Jerusalem or something like that. Well, I think it would be kind of like this. If I were, let's say, a military leader and I was going to go invade a city, let's say I was going to invade Chicago, you know, and before I go in there, you know, I'm just like, you know, I'm making this big pronouncement that a time of reckoning has come for Chicago. Armageddon is here. Obviously, I'm not saying the biblical Armageddon where final judgment takes place is happening. But what I'm doing, I'm kind of using that term is like just a time of great judgment and destruction that's about to come on Chicago. I'm kind of making it like it's like Armageddon. Just like you'll hear people say, you know, we're going to release hell on earth. Well, they don't mean that literally. They mean that figuratively because hell is really bad. Hell is judgment. There's fire. There's all these things. And so people will often use language that way. And I think the Bible even does that sometimes when it comes to things like the day of the Lord. And I think specifically, too, uh, that could be going on with the sun being dark and the moon turned to blood. I believe there's one major event. So uh, hopefully, you know, but that's that's my opinion. It, it could have happened when the Medes and Persians got taken over, the, that the sun got blacked out and there was a red red moon that night. I've not read anything about that in the Bible or in history. But if somebody convinced me that happened, I'm like, okay, well, I guess it's going to happen more than once. But I, I do. I think it's going to come in the future. But uh, let's see. So another question by Sermonator. In short, in your opinion, what has to happen before the rapture? Temple or no temple? It's my opinion that they will build another temple, but I don't I don't think there has to be. I, I really don't. I think... I think the abomination of desolation, again, in reality has happened. I think, though, there is there is a foreshadowing, you could say, with the abomination of desolation of a desecration of the temple of God in our body with something like the mark of the beast. So uh, if they implement the mark of the beast tomorrow, um, I'm not going to be like, well, that can't really be it because the temple's not up yet. Uh, I don't think there has to be a temple. It's my opinion there probably will be. I don't think we've had this Zionism going on for the last 150 years or whatever, whatever for no reason. I believe we are being set up big time 
the Zionist movement that started in the late 1800s, I mean, it has done more to push things towards what it looks like we're reading in Revelation than anything. I get why the old timers, you know, they looked at a lot of these things and thought it was figurative. But, man, what we are seeing promoted with the Zionist movement is just their agenda is the beast agenda of revelation. So um, because of that, I think there will be a temple, but I don't, I don't, I'm not dogmatic that there has to be one. So uh, hopefully that answers that question. But um, so, yeah, I asked about the push to future because Matthew 24, 29 says immediately after the tribulation of those days. Right. And again, immediately after the tribulation of those days, you know, that's when they needed to be ready. Or that's when, when the sun was dark and moon turned to blood, when they didn't know that was going to happen. You know, because no man knew the day or the hour, so they were told to be ready. They weren't ready. And so when that tribulation came, there was no deliverance. There was no deliverance in Jerusalem. There was no glorious appearing in Jerusalem. Yes, Christians had escaped before that. They saw the signs. You know, and they must have realized too that, wait, Jesus isn't going to save us from this. This nation still isn't trusting in him and still not believing in him. And they did the right thing and they got out of town. But they were not caught up. They weren't gathered by the angels. None of that stuff happened. No, what happened was they were destroyed. And so, um, wasn't so uh, preaching in politics wasn't the audience that Jesus was telling to be ready his disciples, i.e., believers, or do you think Jesus was telling unbelievers to be ready? Isn't destruction what the audience was to be ready for? While he was speaking to his disciples, understand um, in that in that message it says, "Whoso readeth, let him understand." So what Jesus was saying, this isn't just a record of what he happened to tell his disciples. This was a message for that generation. Okay. And, um, and so when he, uh, so when he, when he, when he asked, or when the disciples asked these questions or when he's speaking, he is, he's telling all of them to be ready. He's wanting the, all of the Jews to be ready. There is no distinction noticed or even talked about between the church and Israel at this point. No, the the apostles, when you read the book of Acts, they still consider themselves a part of Israel. They still considered themselves connected to the temple. They still participated in things of the temple. And they preached repentance to Israel, trying to get Israel ready. That's what the book of Acts is all about. And Israel, they could have been ready had they repented, but they didn't. And so, um, you know, the, so the thing is, yes, there was coming judgment that was going to happen. They were going to be, they were going to go through great tribulation. They were going to go through hard times, but there was going to be a deliverance that would come, even though they were going to go through some very difficult times. And so the deliverance, it, it never happened. And so I believe the audience was, still Israel. And the and the other reason for that too, all the parables before were ones that we would all agree are directed at Israel. And all the parables that are after are ones that are directed 
at Israel. And so, again, I encourage people to watch my discussion about the Olivet Discourse parables. I think those are it's it's crucial that we properly understand the first century application or interpretation of those things. They do have application for us. Without a doubt, there's application we can make because we understand Israel didn't do what they were supposed to do. We can go back and look at that parable and say, this is what we should be doing. Okay, and so, um, but but yeah, I, I do believe Jesus was doing his role of a watchman, of a prophet, of the Messiah, and warning them was about what was to come. And they weren't ready. And so, what does all Israel shall be saved mean if Israel is genetic? Well, again, Israel, uh, it, th that promise is not about genes. We And it's spelled out in Romans 9, for they are not all Israel that are of Israel. Uh, let me, I'm not going to quote that right, so let me read that for you. But we do have to pay attention to what he said in, oh, I'm at Luke. In Romans chapter 9, he said, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted for the seed. So you have people who claim to be of Israel, but they aren't counted for the seed. They, they claim it. I like how John said it. You know, there are those who say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Anyone can identify as a Jew. Anyone can get a modern day Jewish organization to acknowledge themselves as Jew and, and support their preferred pronouns or whatever. But does Jesus recognize it? And no, those who are truly of Israel are those who are of Isaac, not genetically, but of faith. And in Galatians 4, makes it very clear. Now, we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. So if, if they are only of Israel in the flesh, they are not counted for the seed. They will not be saved um, unless, but they, 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 they could all be saved if they will buy not still in unbelief. And then they will be truly of Israel. And so, uh, let's see. I got to right, I'm skipping through some of these. So if y'all aren't putting question at the beginning, I'm probably reading over because I'm way, uh, I'm, I've gotten behind on the chat. So, all right. I, all right. So I think I got that all caught up on the chat. So again, if I, if I miss something, I just kind of scrolled through there real quick. If I miss something, put the question again and just remember put question at the beginning. So I know. Uh, what specifically to look at. So uh, let me go to a few uh, other things that I wanted to, uh, or no, I'm sorry. I got to go to the other questions that I had from before. So sorry, I've got like 15 documents up right now. And so I want to make sure uh, I get to all of these things. So here we go. Um I, th I just kind of want to respond to this comment. I thought this was a, I thought this was a good comment. And, and this was by George. And he said, and here, it seems to me that you take a reasonable partial preterist position. In my research, that seems to be the historical position of the church uh, when it was one for the first thousand years. 
uh, was retained by both Orthodox and Roman Catholic or Roman churches after the split and was also retained by the Protestant reformers that left Rome in the 16th century. It seems to be that one has to go to 20th century America to find a time period in which a majority of Protestants reject partial preterism. I've noticed that many, not all, modern evangelicals do not know of or perhaps simply dismiss the very significant distinctions between partial preterism and full preterism, which saddens me. I have yet to determine why this is, but perhaps Occam's razor applies here. After all, both contain the word preterism, though you'd still think obviously conditioning precedent partial would lead to distinctions being made. I also think this lack of distinction may be related to the fact that many modern evangelicals associate partial preterism with amillennialism. Those same evangelicals might hold the view that if amillennials believe Christ is ruling and reigning right now, as they certainly do, that they are also ipso facto full preterists. However, this ipso facto assumption would further fail to make yet another distinction that amillennials hold that the kingdom of has already arrived, but yet is still to come. The difficulty is discerning the paradox of the kingdom of God having already arrived, but being still yet to come is, in my opinion, the largest missing part of many eschatological discussions today. I note that this channel, thankfully, has had several discussions on this subject. The lack of discussion on this subject is perhaps for good reason. To go back to Oakham's razor paradoxes can definitely be difficult to understand, especially for those who do not already possess a fairly decent amount of theological knowledge. He said that was a lot of stuff there. Well, to, base, to basically what he's saying right here and what I got from this is I sense a frustration that I also have that um, when it comes to certain positions, okay, because he, he noticed that he, he was talking about the distinction between partial preterism and full preterism, that people can't understand the distinctions there. And, and, and you know what? Here's why. Most evangelicals are not familiar with other positions, especially fundamental Baptists. Most fundamental Baptists, they have been force-fed what they are supposed to believe, what they are supposed to say, and that's why we hear constant repeating of foolishness. That's why they are still, many of them are still out there saying, you have to distinguish the difference between the rapture and the second coming. If you say that that is, that is dumb, that is so unbiblical, I understand what you are trying to say, but you are failing because you're literally changing the words of God. When you're saying that the uh, you got to distinguish the difference between the blessed hope and the glorious appearing, that is a dumb, foolish statement that is so easy, easy to debunk. When you're teaching that the day of Christ is not the same thing as the glorious appearing, as the second coming, you know, and those things are not the rapture, you, you, it's, if, if you're repeating that, you're doing just that, you're repeating that. You did not come to that conclusion from reading your Bible. When you're, if you're calling yourself a dispensationalist, no one calls themselves a dispensationalist from reading their Bible. You are not going to do that. That word's only in the Bible four times, and it's dispensation not dispensationalist or dispensationalism or dis even dispensations. And so you're, you're just repeating and regurgitating things. And this is where I'm frustrated when it comes to the subject of eschatology is most Baptists are, they, they've only been brainwashed into a system that is full 
of errors and easily provable flaws, and they have successfully demonized every other position to where people hear certain words and terms and phrases and they lose their minds and they immediately quit listening and they clearly don't understand it. And proof they don't understand these terms is 95% of the people preaching against you know, the pre-wrath rapture, against replacement theology, clearly don't understand it. There are exceptions. There are guys out there who are preaching against what I believe and they accurately represent it. I, I've only noticed two. Okay, and I'm going to name them. And I'm going to name them because I respect these guys for at least being honest in their in 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 their representation. Okay? So I'm naming them in a good way even though I still disagree with what they say. I've only, I've only seen two guys that I feel like accurately represent my position and people like me in our position, and that's Dennis Coral in his book Defending uh, the Pre-Tribulation Rapture. I think he accurately represents the position of people like me. And and I appreciate that. I disagree with his reasons for defending a pre-tribulation rapture. But at least the guy has clear clearly has a has a pretty good understanding of what people like me believe. The other one's Pastor Joey Wampler. I've had on my other channel before uh talking about revival. Uh you know he's somebody we've talked about these things. I've listened to his preaching on this subject and I disagree with his preaching on the subject, but he's somebody that will actually accurately represent the other position. And so um, those are literally the only two guys that I've ever felt like when I listened to them that they even had an elementary understanding of these other positions. That's it. And I've listened to, I've listened to a lot of different people preach against my position. You know, I like to see if I can defend it. And I think I can from everybody, but with most people, it's just like, this is stupid. This guy has no idea what post-trivers or replacement people even believe. And I find that really frustrating. And so part of that is, again, that typical just brainwashing people do. And we've demonized the term preterism big time. I mean, I still don't want to call myself a partial preterist because it's like, <clears throat> when I hear that word preterist, that's a bad word. That's that's a that's a theological cuss word, if you ask me. But at the same time, too, here's another reason why I'm not going to just subscribe to that position, is there are many ways people like or, or many camps in the preterist camp, in the partial preterist camp. Just as there's many camps in the pre-trib world, there there's a lot of different camps there, and so you know it's it's hard to find a definition that actually fits what you believe. But understand, there are some things that the partial preterists say that are right. But what do the, you know? a lot of your futurists and Baptists do? When they hear you saying something that lines up, they just start screaming preterist. And that's like screaming heretic. And then people get scared of that. And so, uh, again, most people, they... yeah, they, So they do, they associate that term with bad things like amillennialism, another cuss word you know, and fundamental Baptist world. And people are scared of that. And here's the thing, and this is what, I like what he said, the lack of discussion on the subject is perhaps for good reason. Okay? But I personally think, you know, and I, I think I think we need discussion on this because without a doubt, in the futurist, independent fundamental Baptist world, 
There is a great deal of error. There's a great deal that they do not understand. And I think we need to talk about these things. Uh, he mentions in here too, there's the difficulty in discerning the paradox of the kingdom of God having already arrived, but still being yet to come, it, it, as is an opinion. And I agree with that. And, you know, and, and you know, uh, Brother Clem, I've listened to him do some really interesting teaching about the kingdom of God as already coming. But at the same time, too, um, you know, I believe in a future coming kingdom. I believe there's truth in both things. But you know what? We've not, none of us, I don't think, have caught it completely understood, you know, what's been fulfilled spiritually, what's been fulfilled physically, or what is yet to be fulfilled. You know, there's there's some interesting things that we need to talk about when it comes to all this, and nobody does. We just hear a word we don't like. You know, we hear something that slightly goes against our position, and then we just want to cream people. It's like, no, we ought to be, we ought to be able to have a conversation about this. and uh, But it's just not happening, and I, I personally find that frustrating. And so, um, let me see. Let me get back to the thing here. So, okay, question. So, unbelieving Israel wasn't ready, but believing Israel was ready. So, why do you think the prophecy was postponed? Is a minority not enough to bring about prophecy? Uh, so, yeah, that's a very good question. So, the my, the believing Israel, they again, they, they were spared judgment. But what was God wanting? Okay, God was wanting uh, a, a kingdom of people from all nations. And while... That was still forming, I guess you could say. You know, it wasn't. It you know, it wasn't to the point that he wanted. Again, um, you know, look look at how many millions have been saved over the last two thousand years. A lot of that work was supposed to have been being done long before Christ's first coming, because we can go back and we read about these things in Isaiah and Ezekiel, they and in Zechariah, they were supposed to be being a light to the world. Let me go to this one passage here because this was never fulfilled. Um, I got to look it up. In Zechariah 8.23. So let's start reading. Uh, we'll start reading in uh, verse 21. It says, And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that the Lord God is with you. Now this, was, this prophecy was given when they were rebuilding the temple. They were supposed to be being a light to all nations. They were supposed to be... Uh, and causing people to come to Jerusalem. They didn't do that. We see them, even in the book of Ezra, immediately when they get back and they start rebuilding the temple, they're excluding people. They're not even making a way for people to come in, even though they were told in Ezekiel to do that. I plan on, on preach, I'm probably going to be talking about that next Sunday in my Sunday school lesson as we're going through Ezra. But so understand what we're seeing in the Olivet Discourse, it was it was about that physical nation of Israel. So it's not just believing Israel versus unbelieving Israel. No, 
under those Old Testament prophecies, they were told, here's what you as a nation need to do. And that physical nation did not get it done. And so those who got saved, you know, you know, they continued being a part of that spiritual nation that are the other husbandmen that Jesus lent his vineyard or that God lent the vineyard out to. So again, Matthew 24, it is, it's about a physical city. It's about a physical nation. And that physical nation did not repent. That physical nation was not ready. Yes, certain individuals were, but the nation as a whole was was not ready. So no, the prophecy did not come to pass uh, in that day. The, na the nation failed, but the new spiritual nation will we'll get it done. So I no, I don't believe the minority was enough because again, it was about a physical nation being ready and the physical nation was not ready. And the, the apostles did everything they could. They preached hard. They got beat up for it. They fought, I mean, they fought all kinds of battles trying to get Israel saved and they didn't. So the thing is that the, the people of that generation, they will get to experience the kingdom and deliverance and all that, but in the rapture and the second coming of Christ, but it didn't happen in that day and it never was going to happen. It was, it was never going to happen in that day, but it didn't stop the Messiah from coming and doing what he said he would do and presenting it to Israel. So uh, I, I hope I'm clarifying these things right. I hope I'm being clear and what I'm uh, trying to express here. But yes, the physical nation was not ready and they never were. They never were going to be ready. And so, but it didn't, it didn't mean Jesus wasn't going to come and still give them the prophecy and the commands and all those things. So let me try to catch back up on this. I keep getting messed up on here and going the wrong way. So my question was, isn't the kingdom of heaven slash God, all believers throughout time, I read at hand is within reach. So they could have entered the kingdom if they had accepted Jesus as their Messiah. You know, and that goes back to the whole, you know, spiritual versus physical. I do. I believe I'm a, I'm a premillennialist. I believe in a literal physical kingdom. And it was, it was being presented to Israel at that time. It was being offered to them at that time. Go back and read all the, pro many of the prophecies where, uh, that Jesus fulfilled that are even quoted in the New Testament as being fulfilled. And then go read all of that portion. And you know what you'll often see too? Military victories. Why didn't any of those things happen? I'll tell you why. Because Israel wasn't ready. So the physical kingdom did not get set up during that time because that, that physical kingdom of Israel was not ready. And so they ended up having it taken from them. Okay, that, was, that, that ministry, that stewardship that they were given, it was taken from them and it was given to another nation. Now, here's the thing. When that kingdom was taken from them, it was taken because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. So when it was given to another nation, it's not just going to immediately come. That other nation has to take the time to go and do all the things that Israel had failed to do even in their time when to them were committed the oracles of God. Which, by the way, was if we start with Abraham, 
was roughly 2,000 years. So if, if we start there, um, yeah, it, it, was, it was roughly 2,000 years. So And what God was looking for did not come uh, you know, through, through that physical nation, but it will through the spiritual nation. So, um, yeah, the popular named position seems to be inadequate in describing what the Bible actually seems to present, hence much of the frustration by everybody. That's by John Young. I agree 100% with that statement. And the problem, the problem with all these theologies is they are, they're, they're these man-made terms that, you know, that there, there's such a variety of beliefs on those things. And again, when you say even like post post tribulation, well, are we talking about Larkin's tribulation or are we talking about Jesus's tribulation or are we, you know, are we talking about a revelation tribulation? You know, which, which one is it? Cause people use those words in different ways. You know, I, I think pre wrath is, is good because I think there's more agreement about, but even that, Okay, are you talking? Are we talking about the post-tribbers wrath, or the pre-tribbers wrath? Who believe, uh, you know, the seals are also God's wrath. So you know these things. It, everybody has different ways of looking at these things. So it's it is it is very it's very frustrating, and that's why I think if we all got back to a biblical language, I think that would clarify a lot more stuff. If instead of trying to defend theologies that are full of speculation we just defended what the scripture says itself and didn't mess around with a lot of the speculation that just ends up causing strife and division i think we'd be a lot better off and i think we would all be a lot less dogmatic on a lot of things but uh has anyone ever heard of david wilcoxon not me don't know who that is um let's see so I think, all right, so I think I've got to all the questions. So, wow, this, it is 110 already. This went by fast. Man, I didn't get to a bunch of the stuff on here. Uh, let me see if I can briefly uh, cover some of this stuff. Uh, somebody had asked on one of the comments, too. People are really getting reprobated these days for historicism. Um I don't think that's officially happened. That's me just kind of making fun of people who reprobate anyone who disagrees with them. But people do get really bent out of shape by that stuff. And again, I don't care if somebody doesn't like historicism. Uh, I don't I don't tend to agree with historicism. My question is, before you run it down, make sure you actually understand it. And uh, And if you don't like historicism, don't just say historicism bad. No, tell us what's bad about it. Most people can't do that. And that's what everyone needs to start doing, okay? When it comes to, because uh, I'm tired of people, even who would agree with me, making our side look bad. If somebody bashes preterism, here's what you need to ask them. What about preterism do you not like? And let's see if they can actually give some specifics and accurately represent the position. And then ask, you know, what about it? is damnable heresy. You know, and and I think if we're talking about full preterism, I would say to teach that uh, Jesus Christ has already come, uh, to deny a literal return, future literal return of Christ, to deny a literal resurrection of the dead, 
That is damnable heresy based on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Thinking the abomination of desolation already happened is not damnable heresy. Okay, that, that doesn't affect salvation. If you don't like partial preterism, if somebody doesn't like that, they're bad. what about it do they not like? What about it is heresy? Or, you know, or what about it do you disagree with? We can talk about that. Same thing with historicism. I can't give you a reason why historicism is heresy. But I can tell you things that I disagree with about it. But I can't figure out how to make those things salvation issues and stuff like that. And so typically when we get to the reprobating, the heretic naming, a lot of that stuff, typically it's because people are frustrated because they just don't have an answer for something. And, and listen, just because you don't have an answer for something doesn't even mean you're wrong. But listen, if you don't have an answer for something yet, you know, because sometimes there's weird theologies out there too that, you know, you've never heard of because they're so weird. Well, the first time it gets brought up to you, you might not be prepared to answer that specific crazy question. So, you know, it's okay to have enough humility to just say, you know what, I'll get back to you on this. Don't just immediately start screaming heretic call names and all that kind of stuff. Otherwise, you're going to end up making yourself look bad. And so Nick Sayer says the pre-wrath position is from the 1990s. It is a new doctrine. Okay. All right. I, I, that's, that's, uh, that's a big claim. All right. That, that's a big claim. But um, can you define the pre-wrath position? All right. All right. Nick Sayers, can you define the pre-wrath position? Can you tell us? what you disagree with, and then show us from the scripture where it is wrong. Okay, The pre-wrath position, uh, it, for, for one, it can fit pre-tribbers. Pre-tribbers, they believe we're not going to be here for God's wrath. Here's the question that, that Nick probably is not capable of answering, um, is, and that is what biblically can we define as God's wrath? Is there a difference between wrath and tribulation? What are those differences? Are they the same thing? Can you prove that from the scripture? See, Nick Sayers, he's just kind of throwing one-liners out there. That's what people like him often do. And they don't actually address issues. And so he's trying to claim, uh, you know, it's this new position because that's a way uh, you can kind of often, you know, discredit people. And and that's just that's just dumb because... Um, you know, it, it, uh, it's, it's a huge misrepresentation, but you know, Nick Sayers is a blessing anyway. And, and so I just, I felt like I needed to respond to him, but anyway, I think, I think we're going to go ahead and shut it down now. I hope this helps. And so basically again, to sum up my, my position, uh, and just, if, if y'all don't like it, that's fine. If you disagree, that's fine. Just accurately, accurately represent it. I believe when Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse, he was giving a prophecy to Israel. And he was warning them of some terrible times that were going to come in that generation, like the destruction of the temple and a, a time of terrible tribulation that was to come. But we also, and we see that there is a potential for deliverance, for him coming and gathering his elect from the four winds and, and doing all these things. Uh, but we also see there's a potential of him coming and smiting them that we see at the end of the chapter. And so they needed to be worthy. Now, 
understand Jesus when he gave this parable when he gave this prophecy he knew they weren't going to be ready he knew that nation was not going to repent and do the things that they were supposed to do he knew he was going to be lending out his vineyard to other husbandmen he he knew that but he was fulfilling his role as Messiah, he was fulfilling his obligation, just like he would tell Ezekiel, go tell the people, but they're not going to listen. You know, they would go tell them, and they would tell them about good things that will come if they'll obey, even though God knew they weren't going to obey. And Jesus knew Israel wasn't going to be ready, that they weren't going to receive him, he wasn't going to be gathering them up, but it didn't change the fact that it was still being offered. It was still presented to them. Just like, I believe, unlike the Calvinists, Jesus Christ has presented salvation to the entire world. But is the entire world going to be saved? Of course not. Of course they're not all going to be saved. But it doesn't change the fact he's presented it to them. And, he, and so the thing is, someday when he pours his wrath out in this world, when he casts people into hell, their blood will be upon them and not upon Christ. Not only did he pay for their sins, but he did offer them eternal life. The gospel has gone to this world, and when these people die, it will be their blood will be upon their own hands, not on Jesus Christ. He offered it, and the kingdom, it was offered to Israel in that day, but they were not ready. And so what we, the parts that we do not see fulfilled in the Olivet Discourse, meaning the good things, they are going to be fulfilled upon that group of other husbandmen and those who of of Israel who are of faith they managed to escape the judgment because they read the words of Jesus and understood what was coming but also too they will still participate in those good things that were promised because there's going to be a resurrection and so even if I don't live to see the rapture I will still experience it I will still participate in the coming of Christ I will be I will be gathered up during that time and so uh that's why, uh, th that to me, that is the only way to accurately and consistently interpret all of the Olivet Discourse. Without a doubt, he, it was a prophecy for that generation. But I believe it is wrong to try to make it like it was all fulfilled in that day because it wasn't. I think it's also foolish to put a 2,000-year gap in there You know, when uh, Jesus specifically mentioned this is going to be in that gener this generation wouldn't pass. So, um, hopefully, uh, hopefully that makes sense and it was a blessing. And so, uh, anyway, uh, I appreciate the live audience. I appreciate all the questions that we had. Um, oh, I, I have to cover this one just because it's so easy. This isn't even really related. I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm going to quit. No more questions. All right, no more questions. But Andrew H. asked, uh, could you give a quick rebuttal to the Hagee? Bless them that bless thee. That's always taken out of context. And yeah, that um, obviously, okay, first off, Jesus cursed Israel a lot. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if, if it's wrong to curse Israel, then uh, Jesus did, did quite a few sins. No, I will bless them that bless thee, and in thee, Shall all the nations of the world be blessed? The way the nations of the world are blessed is through Jesus Christ. All the nations have been blessed through Abraham 
because the Messiah came from Abraham. The Messiah came. That has already happened. And so to to replace Jesus with Abraham's descendants is stupid. And it is unbiblical. And it is not in any way what the scripture teaches at all. And so John Hagee is just a goofball, probably getting funding from Israelis because he's a big name in America and he influences American politics. That causes uh, our government to give Israel an awful lot of money. And I think it's a shame and I think it's an embarrassment. All the na- in, uh, in uh, Galatians 3, 6, says, Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen. That's not all nations. Um, God justified the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed, so then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So Schofield, he changed that to descendants, and a lot of people have picked up on that, guys like John Hagee. And so, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people have fallen for that, and I think that's a shame. And so, anyway, um, hopefully that answers that to you. But Nick Sayers, again, he he's another. Uh, he's on there again. I don't. I gotta stop messing with him. But he's so easy. But uh, Nick Sayers is obsessed with certain preachers out there, and he can't get them out of their head. A, a guy can literally preach Bible, and he just sees preachers. He just he just sees their face. He hears doctrine. He just meets things with preacher. I mean, you, you gotta stop letting people live in your head rent free like that. That's not cool. And so, um, you know ask are they is it biblical and but you know it's a whole lot easier to slam a man than it is to refute a doctrine and so nick sayers he likes to take the lazy approach to everything and uh, what do we expect from a guy who thinks that stephen saw the rapture and when everyone dies they go to the rapture and that you can lose your salvation that takes a special type of lunacy And so anyway, I appreciate everyone joining me uh, for this today. Let me know if you like it. If I get like a ton of likes and a ton of views on this, then I'm going to know we should do more of these live streams. This is only the second one I've done out of 50 episodes. So let me know what you think about this, and hopefully we'll do do more in the near, near future. So thank you all for watching this. God bless you, and we will see you all next time. God bless you and Nick Sayers.